spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. It's the calm before the conferences in episode 268 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. That's right, E3 2019 starting this weekend. Of course, next week will be our full recap of the biggest weekend in gaming. But first, how about we talk about a new series on NBC, The In-Between. Maybe you heard our special interview with Paul Blackthorne that you can get at downandnerdypodcast.com right now. He plays Detective Tom Hackett. How about we talk to his daughter this week, Harriet Dyer, who plays Cassie Bishop on the show. We'll dive even deeper into the in-between, find out who Cassie really is, get more insight into the character from Harriet herself, and maybe even a few teases for what's coming in the show as well. Also going to talk about the end of an era for one comic and Hall H., Maybe not being as big this year at San Diego Comic-Con. But speaking of comics, we'll start with that. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Zach Kaplan, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to slide out that long box or press the power button on the tablet or the laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and all good things must come to an end. And come to an end on your own terms if you're lucky it's eclipse number 16 from top cow and image comics written by zach kaplan giovanni timpano on the art flavio dispenza on the colors and troy Petiri on the letters now this is the final issue of the story and zach kaplan said in an interview not too long ago he said i wanted to end this on my terms so this was absolutely his choice now one thing that this issue gives us is a lot of closure. And that's not something we we get from final issues a lot. But also we get to that point with Brant and his daughter. We get that showdown between Bax and Parker that you probably wanted if you were a reader of the story. Something major does happen with Brant though. I I really try to be spoiler free in these, at least for this final issue anyway. I mean if you're a longtime reader there are a couple of moments that you've probably been waiting for that you do get in this issue. I can say that one of them has to do with Bax. If you were waiting on something in particular for Bax, and you probably were, yeah, you do get that. And I'm not going to tell you what it is, but you'll be very happy, I think, when you see it. And even though there was plenty of closure, there were a couple things in particular that were really left open-ended. For me personally, this was the ending that I always wanted for Bax. And I hope we get to find out where he goes from here based on what happens, especially in the last couple of pages, because I do think that there is more story to tell here. I'm just not sure how we're going to get it or if we're going to get it. And that's kind of a bummer. Now, all this and I haven't even mentioned Celerity yet, and there's going to be changes coming there as well, which should be obvious even without you reading this last issue. So I don't really consider that a spoiler. But one of my favorite parts about this series from the beginning has been Giovanni Timpano's art. I mean, it's been stellar throughout the series. And I think that there's one page in particular for me that's a close-up of Cielo that was really stunningly emotional, especially if you were a longtime reader of Eclipse. I mean, it was a nice close-up shot, and it was just, it was 
all in the eyes for me, man. It was just such a great page, especially in a final issue like this. It's one of those pages that if you're a real fan of the series, you'll remember that page. You'll remember that moment because of that art. And you also really have to tip your hat to Flavio Dispenza on the colors. I mean, because without the variation in the colors in a story like this, it can't work. As good as the writing can be and as the line art can be, if your colorist isn't on par, this story is not going to get off the ground because you're talking about a story where the where the sun is literally toxic, right? Where people cannot go outside, they're underground, or maybe they can go outside. And that was the beauty of the part of this story, right? And it, you know whether you need these suits or not, and this immunity, and what's going on, and, and these cures, and it all led up to this moment. So if you don't have a good colorist to portray all of these different characters and all these and and the settings between the inside and the underground, it, this series cannot work. Zach Kaplan said he wanted to end this on his terms. I really feel like he did that, but I can't wait for the upcoming, I believe it's a TV adaptation. Zach, I know you listen to the show from time to time. If I'm wrong about that, let me know. I believe we're getting a TV adaptation of Eclipse, and maybe that's where the story gets moved forward if we're lucky enough to get multiple seasons of that. But I have a feeling even though this was the final issue, we are not done with Bax, Cielo, and company on Eclipse. This has always been a pull for me from the beginning. Don't wait for the trade. Pick up these single issues of Eclipse from Top Count Image Comics, and it's a very, very great read. You'll love the story, I think. We also have a continuation of a review from our website from this week. Now we're going to go to Fallen World number two from Valiant Comics. Dan Abnett on the writing, his first Valiant series, by the way, in case you didn't know that. Adam Polina on the art, Ulysses Ariola on the colors, and Jeff Powell on the letters. Now, this story does center around Rye back in the year 4002. And I'm, I really don't want to spoil much of the first issue, but you saw that uh, he made a decision that kind of changed a lot of stuff for a lot of people. And we kind of leave the last issue with Father is Alive and Well, by the way. And, oh, this might be a little bit of a spoiler, so I'll give you a little bit of an alert here. Kind of has, I don't want to say possessed, maybe possessed is a cheap way to say it, the body of bloodshot. So as if things weren't dangerous and bad enough with father actually being alive, yeah, now father's in the body of bloodshot, one of the most devastating killing machines that we've seen in maybe even all of comics. If you want to go that far with bloodshot, if you know bloodshot well enough, this is not the dude that you want not to be on your side. Now we do have Rye, who's pretty formidable, and we have the Eternal Warriors, well, plus the Geomancer, Karana, that he happens to be, you know, that that is his ward at the time, or at least that's how he puts it. I don't know how she'd feel about that, but still, at the same time. So, I mean, Rye wants to just end this now, but it's not going well. Let me just put it that way. I mean, how could it go well when you've got this already powerful being now in the body of bloodshot? So it's not really going well. So it's almost like, hey, hey, you need to regroup, come back, and we'll figure this out in another point because this is not working right now. And then we kind of put the brakes on a little bit. And then there's also something going on where they aren't the only ones looking for father, by the way. And and there's a little bit of an intriguing part at the beginning of this book. And then it eventually converges, converges towards the end where I'm not exactly sure where this is going, but it doesn't seem like it's good news if you're on the side of the heroes. And, you know, it's almost like being at the birth of a cult, 
right? Like when just when a cult's getting ready to get started and you start to hear the, you know, the, the propaganda and everything's being spewed and the, the poisoning of the minds of some or some people that think they have it good in this cult, but they really don't when you're looking back in the grand scheme of things and trying to convince those people that they didn't have it good with what they had. Not always an easy task. So that's part of the story. We also have Rye basically coming to terms with the decision that he made in the first issue and, and really, really humanizing himself. And I said that in my review of the last issue, and I believe it even more here, is that it seems like everybody's really comfortable around each other. And it leads to them not necessarily being, I don't want to say careful with what they say, but this this whole, the dialogue in this book seemed very casual and a little bit of a 180 from the first book. And I still haven't really decided how I felt about that. The The first book kind of felt very old world in a new world setting. And this just seemed like a very, not necessarily modern setting, but modern for that time setting. It just it just seemed like the dialogue was a complete 180 from issue one to issue two. And I'm not sure whether that's a good thing or a bad thing or not. I do love the new Geomancer, though, in this story. And and Galad is kind of at the point where he's had enough. The Eternal Warrior's had enough. He's hit grumpy old man stage where he's like, damn it, I'm going to say what I want, and we're going to do things my way or the highway. He's he's been He's become a get-off-my-lawn sort of guy. I mean, he really wants to make sure things or done his way. He's very particular. So, and but but I do love how humanized Rye is in this story. I think that this is the most human we've ever seen the character, and I think that that can only lead to good things. And Father is just freaking terrifying. There's a couple things that he does, even when they're trying to get away, that make me go, "Whoa!" I don't know how they're going to handle this. And you know, Rye seems pretty confident that he can handle it, but I'm not sure that Rye is is as mature and together. As we as we might think he is, and I think that that's something that'll play out in future issues as well. Polina's art is pretty darn good. I must say that there there are a couple times where where I I was really impressed with a couple of pages that I saw in this, especially on one particular action sequence, which I can't talk about because it was spoiler free here. But I gotta say, I I had this as a poll at first from the first first issue. I'm kind of backing off on that a little bit. So I'm going to switch this to a pickup. I'm still going to get the next issue, but we're talking about five issues here. And while I do think the pacing is good, I don't, I don't think that they're w- really wasting any time. I feel like the dialogue did take a little bit of a step back in this particular book. So I'm going to, with issue three, I want to see which lane that they end up picking and how they want this story to go before I make my decision on getting the entire run. That's going to do it for this week's edition of what we're reading. Up next, it's time to drop a review, but what will we be talking about? I'm going to leave that as a surprise. Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Aaron Pierre from Krypton on Sci-Fi, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Since next week's going to be all about E3 and the biggest weekend in gaming, I thought I would go ahead this week and give a spoiler-free review of the Krypton Season 2 premiere that's going to be coming to Sci-Fi on Wednesday, June the 12th. So again, going to be spoiler-free, so I'm going to be dancing around some stuff for Light Years From Home, which is the title of the first episode of Season 2 of Krypton. Now, I will say that you've. I'm going to talk about a few spoilers from Season 1, whereas, from here on out, whereas you know Seg and Brainiac, they're trapped in the Phantom Zone right now. You know the General Zod 
has sort of taken over Krypton. Now it's a it's a brand new Krypton. You saw the Superman cape with the House of Zod on it instead of the House of L. So everything is really topsy-turvy when we get started in Krypton Season 2. And you get to see how Zod is trying to shape Krypton the way it is now. And the one thing I love about Zod's character in the season, and this isn't really giving any spoilers away here, is that he truly believes, and this is this is something that happens with villains sometimes, he truly believes that his vision is the right vision for Krypton, and everything that he's doing is for the right reasons. It's the right thing to do. So even though, and there's something that he does in this episode, there's a rebellion that's that's risen up against him that's led by Sig's granddaddy Valel. So, and there's some other names that you, and faces that you'll recognize from that as well that, that should be obvious if you watched last season of Krypton. But there's something that he does in relation to one of the rebellion characters where you just go, whoa, that's, that could be next level stuff right there. And he is, it just gives you, reminds you how ruthless he really is, where it's like, you know, maybe he does want what's best for Krypton. Maybe he is a good dude. Not a good dude. And you find that out right away coming up in this second season. Another person that I wanted to point out is Light Zod, Georgina Campbell, who did, did such a fantastic job last season. And this season, especially the way it starts, it's like, wow, this this is not the Lyda that I remember from season one for a lot of reasons. And I'm not, and again, it's spoiler free. I can't tell you why that is, but just the way she's carrying herself in this first episode of season two, it's like, not that she didn't have that strength in her and maybe even a little bit of, of, of a ruthless streak, but man, wait till you see season two Lyda as opposed to the way season one Lyda was when we first saw her, especially in season one. Very different. And part of that could be, you know, because of what's happened with Seg and everything, too, being in the Phantom Zone. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, James, I've seen the trailers. Seg doesn't look like he's in the Phantom Zone in the trailers. Are we going to see what happens in the first episode? What's going to happen there with him in the Phantom Zone and Brainiac? I will say you do get to see some interactions between Seg and Brainiac. I can't tell you that much because I don't think that's a spoiler either. But as far as what happens... In the Phantom Zone, you will see what happens in the Phantom Zone. That that much I can tell you. But as far as how, if, when, why they get out of that in this first episode, I will leave that for you to see. I will just say that Seg is is going through a lot in this first episode, and there's a there's a little bit of a roller coaster for him in this episode. And Cameron Cuff, I think, has done an amazing job from day one. You could see the fire in his eyes, and that's one thing I've always loved about his portrayal of Sagal. It's just something that Cameron has where he gets this fire in him, right? And you know that it's like, oh, this is Seg's time right here. This is Seg's about to take over. It's like when you see somebody in a professional sport that's at the top of their game, and you see that look, and you're like, oh, they're about to drop a lot of points on this other team, and there's nobody that's going to stop them. Seg has that in him. Whether we've fully seen it yet or not, I don't think we have. But you could see that fire, right? It's just waiting there. It's that House of L fire that he has within him. And that's one of the things I've loved about Cameron Cuff's portrayal. So we do get to see some Seg and Brainiac stuff in this first episode. You might be surprised at some of the things you see from that as well. Spoilers, not 
not going to tell you exactly what happened there, but I, I think that it's something that you'll remember. I'll just put it that way, and, and we'll be done with it. Yes, again, this is part of, you saw him in the trailer, so this is really no surprise. Yes, we do get to see Adam Strange make another appearance. Sean Sippus, that's, I mean, he's just such an enjoy, he's just so enjoyable as Adam Strange. And for, for my money, he picks up right where he leaves off as Adam Strange, really. It's, it's exactly how you remember it, especially from, if you were a fan from season one, from the beginning. And, you know, what side do you think that he's on? in this first episode, right? It's it's pretty obvious what his plan is at this point. And now given you do also find out one of the reasons that he comes that he comes back and has to go through this all over again. There's a, there's a, there's a legit reason why he is where he is now joining back in on this fight. So you get to learn about that. Maybe it maybe it's obvious to you what that is. Maybe it's not, but you will you will find out there's a lot of answers that we get in this first episode of Krypton, actually, and it moves pretty fast. I mean, this is a show where, you know, it could easily ease in to the first episode of the second season, right? You know, kind of answer a couple questions from the end of season one and, you know, leave some stuff. No, no, no. We get a lot of answers in this first episode, wasting absolutely no time. Because remember who you're dealing with villain-wise here. You've got Zod. You've got Brainiac. You've got... You know, I guess you could, however you want to classify Lobo, that's out there now. You've also got Doomsday is a part of the equation. And that that's a lot to deal with. You don't have a whole lot of time for messing around. And this show definitely does not do that in this first episode. Now, I will transition and talk about one last thing, and that is Lobo. Emmett J. Scanlon. I'm going to tell you right now, Lobo fans, you've been waiting for this. And and I think we're going to get exactly what we should get out of Lobo. Just, just even by a little bit that I saw. I was so psyched when I saw exactly how it was going to go. I mean, you see bits and pieces of it from the trailer. The look does look good. I mean, it's, it's, it's so... And the practical effects on that, I love that they didn't use any kind of special effects for the look of Lobo and it's all practical. It just looks... So I think it adds to the performance. And then you've got Emma J. Scanlon's portrayal of the character. I'm just going to say he gets it. He absolutely 100% gets it. And I want you to rewind to when you first found out about Krypton and what it was going to be about. And if you doubted it and then you saw it and you went, wow, this show is so much more than I thought it was going to be. And season two takes that up even another notch in just one episode it just puts the pedal to the floor, and I can only imagine how it's going to be the rest of the season. But keep checking back on the show. And, of course, at downandnerdypodcast.com, there'll be more reviews of episodes of Krypton coming up. But this is a show that you should be watching live every week. It is that good. You don't want to miss it and find out what happens on social media or something like that. No, 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 no. You need to be watching Krypton because if you don't, you're going to be missing out on maybe the best show at least one of the best shows that DC Comics is putting out right now. It's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of the Krypton Season 2 premiere. Up next, there's some very interesting nerd news to tend to, so we'll do that on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is B.D. Wong from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
Looks like you might not need those comfy lawn chairs in San Diego after all. It's time for nerd news. And this is news that to me was kind of surprising and not surprising at the same time. And I really want to dive into it a little bit. And this was, I think, first reported on the Hollywood Report and then confirmed by Warner Brothers that Warner Brothers pictures will be skipping Hall H this year at San Diego Comic-Con. Now, before you freak out, IT Chapter 2 will have a panel at Comic-Con this year, at least a Hall H, it looks like. So they will be featuring that, and I think that's like a Scare Diego type of situation there, or whatever pun that they want to throw on it. But I know what you're thinking, okay? You're thinking, okay, this is supposed to be a big slate coming up for DC films, right? You've got Wonder Woman 84, you've got Birds of Prey, you've got the Joker movie, and you're thinking, really? No Hall H panel? How is this going to even happen? Now, first of all, I want to remind you that Warner Brothers and DC booths are combining for a super booth on the floor at San Diego this year. So they just said they wouldn't be at Hall H. As of me recording this podcast, there's no new information on what their actual plans are. But we do know they are not going to be doing a Hall H presentation. But that doesn't mean there's not going to be any presence. We could still see signings by, say, the cast of Wonder Woman 84. We could see certain appearances, maybe at the booth or something like that. It's all in how they want to draw their attention. And I understand that maybe what you're thinking, that, well, you know, you're not going to give Wonder Woman the Hall H treatment. You're not going to give... Birds of Prey, the Hall H treatment, and 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 maybe, and this is absolutely one hundred percent nothing against the folks at San Diego, but and you hear, and I've talked to plenty of fans that feel this way, and that maybe the whole Hall H reveal thing has lost its luster. And I don't know if you agree with me on that or not. There are certainly plenty of big Hall H moments, right, where you finally get to see that trailer or something like that, but. Does it make any less of an impact by putting it out on YouTube or something like that or social media or even showing it at the booth right on the floor, not in Hall H? Now, I know that you hate crowds at San Diego Comic-Con in the aisles, right? I totally get that. But, I mean, there's crowds around the Marvel booth all the time. There's certain booths that are just crowded and are going to jam places up. So Warner Brothers in D.C. probably sees that and, and they say, well, why don't we just do what we're going to do at our booth or something like that. Maybe that's what they're going to do. Maybe they just want to control where it's released. And then and you you also talk about, you'll know, leaked footage that you don't want out there, especially Warner Brothers doesn't tend to release their trailers right away after their Hall H panel or during their Hall H panel online. So maybe they're thinking, you know, instead of doing it that way and have it leak out, we'll just release it on our own terms. And then this also brings down the level of complaints too, right? I mean, there's complaining now that there's not going to be Hall H, but think about it. You're always going to have a group of fans that say, oh, I can't believe we didn't get a full Birds of Prey trailer. Or, oh, I can't believe that's all they showed about Wonder Woman. Oh, I can't believe we only talked about the Joker movie for 15 minutes. Maybe they just don't feel like, A, there's enough time to fit everything in and give give everything its justice. B, maybe there's just certain things that aren't ready yet. We have to wrap our heads around that. Would you want a half-assed trailer to be shown at Comic-Con? Is it going to be enough for you to get a teaser of Birds of Prey and not a full trailer? Maybe not. We don't really know the full reason why that Warner Brothers is not doing this. But think about it. 
There was no Hall H for Marvel last year, the Marvel Studios. That worked out pretty well. I mean, obviously you missed having them there, but I think that Hall H not having Warner Brothers Pictures in it isn't the end of the world like some fans might think it is. And I don't think it is disrespectful to Wonder Woman or Birds of Prey. I think that, well, and first of all, thanks to Patty Jenkins for putting out that poster and that amazing new suit for Gal Gadot. And that looks, it looks amazing. I love the gold. I love the colors. It just pops. They know how to do posters for this Wonder Woman movie. I can tell you that right now. So I love Patty Jenkins for that, putting that out on social media. But maybe that's just how they want to do things. Maybe they just get more of a reaction, get things trending more by putting it out on social media and not necessarily at Hall H. Because think about it. On one hand, you say, well, it's special. It's for the people that go to the con. It's for the fans. Okay, well, that... Hall H holds what, like 3,000 people? You could make 3,000 people really, really happy, or you could make millions of people ecstatic. Which would you rather do? And I'm not talking about getting rid of Hall H completely, but at the same time, having to sit in that line for two days just to see something that lasts an hour and a half, two hours, not something that a lot of fans want to do. So if you want to make more fans happy, cutting down that Hall H line, might do just that. So that's also something that you might want to keep in mind, especially if you're somebody that goes to San Diego Comic-Con all the time. Imagine the dream of being able to just waltz right into Hall H. That would be pretty sweet. Speaking of things that are pretty sweet, Jurassic World finally, finally, finally giving us an animated series. The press release came out from Netflix this past week that DreamWorks Animation teaming up with Netflix for Jurassic World Camp... Cretaceous. Now, basically, it will be set in the Jurassic World universe, by the way, and it's a group of six teenagers who've chosen a once-in-a-lifetime experience in a new adventure camp on the opposite island of Isla Nublar. Now, when the dinosaurs wreak havoc across the island, the campers are stranded. Now they're unable to reach the outside world. They'll need to go from strangers to friends to family if they plan to survive. That is the synopsis that was released by Netflix. Now, if you looked at the little teaser that they put out for this, which you can get it down at nerdypodcast.com, it already looks gorgeous, doesn't it? I know we were supposed to get a Jurassic Park animated series in, what, the 90s or something like that. I'm cool with us getting this now and not necessarily getting that because it looks beautiful. Even though maybe this, we don't know if this is exactly what we want to get are not yet, too, by the way, because we don't really know enough about it. Now, we do know that there are some of the folks that are behind it. Now, Scott Creamer, who who is going to be one of the showrunners, and also Lane Lureris as well, who you might remember from Kung Fu, Kung Fu Panda, The Pause of Destiny. Now, there will also be executive producers. You also have Steven Spielberg, Frank Marshall, and Colin Trevorrow. They're going to be producers as well. Now... I am all in for this. We're not going to get it until sometime in 2020. But I'm so excited for this because I think that animation doesn't get enough credit in storytelling. Okay, I think that we're not doing enough in animation. I think that Into the Spider-Verse really is one of the things that's really gone a long way into showing people, hey, you need to take these animated stories seriously, especially for a property like Jurassic World slash Jurassic Park. I mean, we've had some Lego movies and stuff like that, right? But we've never had a full-on animated series. And now that we do, maybe this gives us a chance to tell 
more of the story. And I feel like this is an underserved franchise in Jurassic World. There's so much you could do, but in live action, it gets kind of expensive, right? So why not turn to animation to tell some of these stories? It just makes sense to me why you would do this. So hopefully, I'm really hoping that this is an all audiences type of thing. I'm not saying you shouldn't make it for kids. I'm not saying you should just make it for adults. What I'm saying is, is that I hope it's something that everybody can enjoy because you know, I have a son at home. I've got another son on the way and you know, I'd like more stuff that I can sit down and watch with them and we can both enjoy. And I think that this really has a chance to be one of those things. Here's something we're not going to get to sit down and enjoy anymore, apparently, and that is Deadly Class and Happy. Two, by the way, both canceled by Sci-Fi this week, according to Deadline. Now, of course, we've got Deadly Class, who is co-produced by Sony Pictures Television. Sony's already come out to say, yep, we're going to shop Deadly Class to other networks. There might be hope that Deadly Class could live on. And it just seems like somebody's going to pick this show up. The first season was knocked down, drag out good. I'm sorry. I'm really surprised that this show got canceled. Ratings seemed okay. I don't want to get into the whole numbers game for this because I'm not sure that that matters in the grand scheme of things, especially now that the show's actually canceled. So I don't really want to get into the numbers game right now. But but Happy had decent ratings as well, especially in the first season, the second season. And, and apparently... It picked. There was a report, I can't remember where it was from, that said that the show picked up really well on Netflix in the first season as well. It's one of the top stream shows by men on Netflix. Now, I know, you know Netflix hasn't come out and confirmed any of that stuff, and I believe that was part of the deadline story where that information came out. So and I, I believe that the first season of Happy was fantastic. My problem was is that I felt like, from season one to season two of Happy, there definitely was a decline. Even though there were some of, a lot of the same players there, I don't know. Maybe it was a genie's finally out of the bottle thing. You kind of knew what to expect from Happy, even though they did some crazy stuff because that's just that's just Happy and that's what they do. It's almost like the shock and awe wore off because you saw the first season, you saw what they were willing to do and where they were willing to go. So maybe it wasn't as surprising, and that sort of took things away from it a little bit. At least for me, anyway. I did not enjoy Season 2 of Happy as much as I did of Season 1. But I loved Season 1. So that's a high bar to hit, and I just don't feel like they were able to hit that level again for Season 2. But certainly not enough to be canceled. And, and Deadly Class barely scratching the surface of their story and kind of ending on a cliffhanger too. And so many great individual performances there. I don't know why you cancel this show. And I'm not saying that Netflix is going to save happy. And I'm not saying that Netflix is going to be a good home for deadly class either, but you're starting to see a lot of people tweeting out from that are, are that are with the show, especially deadly class that it seems like there are, they feel like there's a lot of good options out there for them, but you automatically have to discount, network television for any of these shows, right? Just because of the stories that they tell. And you can't dull it down for a network audience as far as the intensity is concerned and the graphic natures of the show. So you're talking about pay TV services. You're talking about streaming services. Wouldn't be the first time that Amazon saved something from sci-fi, right? We've already got the expanse coming from them, but I just don't feel like this is an Amazon thing. I don't feel like this is a Hulu thing. I think Netflix is the best option probably for Happy. 
more than anything else. The head scratcher for me is Deadly Class. Where do you put Deadly Class on TV? Can you get this on a pay cable service? Do you try and shop it to maybe say YouTube or something like that, which already carries some stuff like like Impulse, which 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 was pretty intense. You've got Cobra Kai, which is already done by Sony Pictures Television, so maybe YouTube TV is an option here. I'm just saying, I think both of these shows should be back, but I especially want to earmark Deadly Class for that because I feel like there were so many great performances on that show. I loved the story in the first season, and I really wanted to see them get a second one. So fingers crossed that both of these shows actually find a way to come back. Speaking of stuff that's been canceled and are trying to be saved at the moment, it looks like DC Universe and Warner Brothers have canceled Swamp Thing after one season, this was originally reported as a rumor by Deadline and ended up being confirmed by the people at Warner Brothers and DC. They've, it hasn't even been, it's barely been a week, and they already canceled Swamp Thing for the first season. And then there, now there's multiple reports out there that the whole DC Universe streaming service is being reevaluated because, of course, Warner Media is going to have their own streaming service. And there's reports that that could be anywhere of upwards of $17 a month, but that would also kind of bring everything in Warner Media together, which would seems like it includes HBO. But that's all kind of up in the air rumor stuff right now. Let's talk about the cold hard facts that we have. And that is that, yes, Swamp Thing has been canceled after one episode. There's still nine more episodes to go. Episode 2 is already up as of today, so you can watch the rest of the season, actually. It will still come out on a weekly basis. You will still get all 10 episodes of Swamp Thing. I think the last episode sometime in August, I think August 2nd or something like that. So you will still get all of your episodes of Swamp Thing. And maybe you're thinking, well, why do I bother if I know that's not coming back for a second season? First of all, you don't know if it's going to end on a cliffhanger. That's one thing. Second of all, you you already know you're probably not getting a second season. Why not just if you were a Swamp Thing fan, why not enjoy it while it lasts? You're giving you're being given that opportunity. This is an opportunity you wouldn't necessarily get with a network series. Think about that. If it's a network series after one episode if they decide, "All right, that's it. Going to cancel it." You get nothing most of the time. You get I mean, they don't even necessarily put it online anymore either. You just get nothing. That is what you end up with, is is no more. Well, at least on this streaming service, you're going to get those 10 episodes. And then maybe you judge it a little bit more harshly because you know it's ending. I understand that. But, you know, I I say enjoy it for what it's worth right now. And if you're if you're on the say, hashtag Save Swamp Thing bandwagon, what do you think would be great for saving the show? Watching it. If you want to save the show, one of the things that you want to do is is watch the show. You think they don't keep that data still? Yeah, somebody, especially if you want somebody else to pick it up, whether it be like an HBO or something like that to pick up the show or a streaming service, you might want to watch the show so then they can go, huh, well, people, even though they cancel it after one episode, are clearly still watching the show. Maybe we need to grab this thing. These sort of things do play a role. So keep that in mind. Here's my other problem, though, with all these reports of DC Universe maybe being reevaluated, and is it going to be going away? Is it just going to be absorbed? How are you feeling right now if you're on the set of Stargirl or if you're making the Harley Quinn animated series? How do you feel right now? Do you feel like you're stable? Do you feel like your thing is ever going to be a thing? Because when this was enough, I mean, like you could even say the same thing about Titans, which is about to run a season two. How are you feeling right now? Because... 
This is now great that this is kind of an isolated incident, but these reports aren't coming out of nowhere about things being reevaluated. So how much longer do we have for DC Universe here? Because they released all these plans, and apparently Swamp Thing was never going to be a huge part of those plans anyway. The people at Warner didn't seem to like the show for whatever reason, even though I did. Fellow critics of mine did. Fans seemed to like it, so you'd think that that would have to matter for something, but... Only time will tell how some of this other stuff is going to be received. I don't think these DC shows are doomed. Don't get me wrong. But you can't be feeling too good about your chances of renewal or about your story going on with all this stuff going on. And I know that you know, some people are pointing to the AT&T merger and things haven't been the same at Warner Brothers in DC since that's happened and things are weird now. And again... Only time will tell. We've already found out, you know, we were just talking about the whole Hall H thing. I actually think that that could end up working out in their favor. So let's let the dust settle on this whole Swamp Thing business a little bit and see where we're at. Remember, we had to we had to pump the brakes on Swamp Thing once before. So we're going to go ahead and do it again, even though it seemed like a lot of the stuff in that original report sort of spelled out the doom that we now have for the show after it's canceled. That's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, going to be talking about the in-between once again. And Harriet Dyer plays Cassie. We'll talk to her next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hello, this is Emmett Esmer from Blindspot on NBC. And you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. One show we've really been loving so far is The In-Between on NBC, which you can see every Wednesday night at 10 o'clock. And it's so great to be able to talk to Cassie Bishop herself. It's Harriet Dyer. Harriet, Harriet, how are you doing today? I am really good. I enjoy that that's the second time you stumbled on Harriet. How are you doing? How on earth is that possible? (laughs) It's not even that early. I know. It should be like it's like a vocal warm-up for drama school kids. Maybe it's also in the American accent, like, Harriet, how are you doing? I think it's that. I think that's what it is. It's, it's, well, my accent's not nearly as good as yours. Let's just get that out of the way right now. Oh, cheers. So let's talk about Cassie a little bit. So when you were first reading the script, what was your first impression of her? I liked her vibe. Like, she wasn't taking this all too seriously. You know, for her, it's really every day. Like, seeing a ghost doesn't make her drop her coffee. She's like, oh, hello, and what would you like? Like, she's she's kind of relaxed about the whole thing, which is good because she, as the series goes on, you see her in so many terrible, compromising situations in these visions she has to go through, and also in these people that she meets. Um, so I think her reaction and her kind of cool, calm, and collectedness her reactions to those people and those things, you know, that's that's what attracted me to her. Like she she's not really a victim, not by far. And she's uh she's strong. She doesn't know what she wants yet or what she wants to do with all of this stuff, but she is a strong, smart chick. Absolutely. Actually, let's talk about those visions for a second, because to me, one of the most interesting things about Cassie's abilities is that she really kind of has no control over when these things happen. So you do such a great job, too, by the way, making those moments feel so authentic. What do you do as an actor to make those moments come across as genuine as possible on screen? It's funny. I think I think with the horror stuff and the kind of... Um which has been on a lot of promos and probably even a little bit in that one, the kind of like hyperventilating of coming out of a thing and like catching herself like I did in the shower that time. Like it's, um, 
I, the best thing is to just imagine nothing. Like, because otherwise you're, you're trying to force something out, I think. I think if she's just, if I'm just pretending that I am Cassie and I've just snapped out of a terrible dream or something, it's like, it's like waking up from night terrors. And when you're waking up from night terrors, the thing is that you're, just, you're thinking about nothing. You're just trying to ground yourself back in reality. You're just trying to look around. Okay, I'm here. I'm okay. I'm not on fire or I'm not on whatever. And, and it sounds lazy, but I think... No, it's, I, think I think that makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> yeah. And also, it's harder to think about nothing, I noticed, when I've had too much coffee. So the days were really really long in Vancouver where we shot. And um, I just had to be really careful sometimes that I didn't over-caffeinate myself. Because otherwise I just found it quite hard to shut my mind down in a way that I needed to. Just to kind of be like a little vessel for for all this horror. Right. But to kind of be quite calm. Well, at least having a coffee cup show up on you guys' set would actually make sense. So you've got that going for you, at least. That's right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, it seems like Cassie has a great support system. So why don't you talk about her family dynamic a little bit and what makes it so special? It makes it special. Uh, she was kind of orphaned, I believe, at about 15. We don't know who her father is. I mean, maybe that's like a season three thing. Who knows? But I don't know who he is. <laughs> her mother, however, died due to alcoholism related to visions and ghosts just like she has. So her her mum's kind of best friends, this gay couple called Brian and Tom, they just adopted her ostensibly when she was about, I think, 15, and she is 25 now. So they've been her primary caregivers and her disciplinarians for, yeah, upwards of 10 years. And, and they know all about her and everything that she needs and all the things that she doesn't want to deal with, they're they're right there for her across the whole thing. And they're just, she has a different relationship with each of them. You know, one's a good cop, one's a bad cop, that kind of thing. Speaking of that relationship, what's it like to work with Paul Blackthorne on this? He's great. He's so great. I mean, he, he's like the yin to my yang in the sense that on set I muck around a little bit and he, he, he keeps me behaving. (laughs) I uh, I tend to be a bit I don't know I try to make the days go go faster and uh, he loves that and I know he loves that about me but also he's he's a good he's a good anchor for me into just just you know slow down and do the work. <laughs> Absolutely, we're talking to Harriet Dyer with Cassie Bishop on NBC's The In Between, which of course you can watch every Wednesday at ten o'clock. Now, Harriet, investigating serious cases like we saw in the first episode of The In-Between can be really hard enough, but then Cassie seems like she has to actually experience it as well. How much of a toll will that continue to take on her throughout the season? It will take a a very large toll, and I hope she would get further seasons. We'll see what that can do to a, a person over time. She has to kind of continually choose not to just drink alcohol and shut it out, which is what her mum did. She has to deal with it just in a real-world way, like it was as if you had seizures or something, you know? You can't you can't just turn away from the world and just go to your room forever. Like, you've, you've got to still be able to operate in a healthy way. So she, they do take a toll, but that's part of, part of the reason why she has such a light touch, because 
she can't take every vision seriously. She can't she can't lose her mind and get upset over every kind of a terrible message she gets. She has to be able to shake it off, and I think she does a really good job of that. Now, I don't know about you, Harriet, but one thing that really creeped me out about the first episode was that whole Peter Rabbit song that we kept hearing over and over and over again. I still hear it in my head. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. Uh, can you talk? Can you think of any songs throughout your life or a song right now that just kind of gives you the creeps? Oh, a song that gives me the creeps. Gosh, I mean, that one did and does, and my boyfriend would start singing it, like, in pitch black apartments sometimes. Of course, of course he did, yeah. And he'd, like, come around the corner doing it, which is quite funny. Um, I don't know. Songs generally... That's what makes this one special because songs, songs, it's their job to kind of uplift you or hug you or whatever. Like, it's very rare that a song does give you the creep. I can't say that I can think of one. Oh, you know what? Nick Cave, Red Right Hand. That gives me the creep. Ah, okay. Okay. And everybody's racing to Google right now to find out what song that is right now. Oh, my God. <laughs> posting titles of Peaky Blinders. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. That's it's, true. Yeah, it's, it's, it was a song... That was a total hit, especially for people who are Australian, because Nick Cave is Australian. But people, we all knew it before it was the title song for Picky Blinders. But as soon as I started watching that show, I was like, oh, perfect. Someone's finally using that song. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Now, another interesting dynamic in the show for me is the one with Cassie and Damien Asante, of course, played by Justin Cornwell. Now, Cassie seems like she's not really fully comfortable with him yet. Now, would you agree with that? Or do you think that yeah. he can be trusted with her secret? She doesn't have many friends. She's just got her two dads and her ghost, really. With him, she knows, by little Abigail saying, tell him to bring his friend, she knows that he's going to be integral. And so she knows that she has to learn to work with him. because, And, and, and it all worked out in the end. Like, he was the one who found that te- Texas tape, which brought us to our friend at the end sitting on my couch. He cracked it, and so she knew she had to let him in, even though she didn't want to, because Abigail told her to. So she kind of, I think she doesn't really care one way or another right now. I think her care and interest in him will grow and does grow. But in the first episode or two, I think she's like, yeah, sure, you don't really believe me. I've met a million of you, and I don't care. So come back to me when you do, like... I think that's how she handles him. Did you like that about the show, too, that you were kind of coming into it in a place where she already has her abilities, there's already people that know her abilities, she knows what her abilities are about, instead of starting the show in a place of she's just discovering her abilities for the first time? Yeah, I think that was cool, right? Because she's, she's in power straight away, and she's our heroine, and so if our heroine's, like, grappling to work out what's going on in the first episode, you're not going to feel confident in her ability to get through this stuff i think meeting her when she's got a handle on it is good because there's always more and more questions she can ask and more questions and more things that will be required of her and so whilst we found her comfortable in her situation she's also got a tension between wanting to communicate with the dead and just not so we actually meet her at a slight crossroads of okay um i'm 25 I keep up with my dad with these cases. Am I going to continue or should I just work on trying to find new ways to block it out? Should I go to a psychologist? Should I drink more? Should I, you know, meditate on getting rid of them? Like, we do find her in a slight fork in the road, but we don't certainly find her kind of 
lost and out of power. It seems like that's kind of affecting her family dynamic as well as we saw in the first episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tom needs me, and he wishes he didn't, and Brian wishes he didn't as well. <laughs> Quite simply. It's like, uh, he's still fucking using it? Sorry, I swore. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's about right, actually. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, he's set up. Because he, as he said in the pilot, it's as if the spirits know that I have a one-way ticket mm-hmm. to the detectives. And so they don't leave me alone because they know I can help. Now, Harriet, before I let you go, let's talk about episode two for a second. And we won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, but we do get to see someone try to make a deal with Cassie. So without spoiling anything, give fans a little bit of a tease of what they can expect. And will we learn anything new about Cassie's abilities, you think? more of what it is we certainly see how much how much scope there is for the show once you see it so i think it's like oh this can go anywhere you know she can wake up in any situation and when she does wake up in those visions she doesn't know she's in a vision she desperately believes that she is that person and she's very stuck um as far as the deal making a deal with roven that's his name you see her entertain it but there is something deeply yucky about him and we see her research his background and then you realize why she doesn't trust him or like him or want to be around him he's a bad guy however he is on the other side and he wants something and she wants something she wants the ability to work things out in a clearer way and and he wants to kind of do some good deeds and get out of there so they don't make a deal as such but i think they acknowledge that neither of them are going away. I think she kind of goes, yeah, don't trust you, do not like you, but if you want to give me some information, sure, I'm not going to say no. I've never heard any character described as deeply yucky before, but that perfectly describes him in every possible way. (laughs) Yes, I'm very eloquent. (laughs) Love that. Well, you can see just how eloquent that she is every Wednesday night at 10 o'clock on NBC. Make sure you're watching The In-Between and watching her as well. It's Harriet Dyer. Thank you so much for joining me this week. My absolute pleasure. Thanks, guys. One of the things I really love about The In-Between is Cassie's character and how she's she's not perfect, but she's a fighter. And she and everything about her just seems so unpredictable And the fact that these visions just sort of happen for her. And she really doesn't have a whole lot of control over it. Or does she? Based on what we might have seen in the second episode, but that's just a little bit of a tease, just in case you haven't seen episode two yet. You're going to want to watch The In-Between every week on Wednesday, 10 o'clock Eastern. Check your local listings outside of those time zones, and it's something that you're going to want to watch over again at NBC.com and on Hulu and all these other places, because this show, while you might think on the surface that it looks familiar, really digs deeper, and there's a great sense of family in the story there. You get some good supernatural stuff, and it looks like we're going to have a nice ongoing story with a kind of uneasy villain. It still remains to be seen exactly how much we're going to find out about the in-between as the season progresses. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Harry Dyer for joining me this week to talk about the in-between. Thanks to the folks at NBC as well. If you want more from us, go to downandnerdypodcast.com and make sure you're following us on social media as well. Facebook.com slash downandnerdy and at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly 
Be good to your fellow nerds.